everyone, welcome back to Transform the Norm, the podcast. My name is Plena Elsa, and in this podcast, we're going to look for answers to some difficult questions related to transitional justice and sexual reproductive health and rights. So great you're here to find out what we have to say. And today, I'm talking to Aviva Stein. She's the co founder of Catalistas, where a team of consultants use, work together using an intersectional feminist approach. They offer services to various actors that are looking to grow, change, or develop. She herself is experienced in program development, situational analysis, strategic planning, and what I heard, a lot more. I'm super, super excited that you're here today to share your thoughts, so welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great, thanks. And I guess we're just going to jump right into it, because um, the answer that we're going to try and answer today is how can we implement intersectional feminist approach in developing transitional justice mechanisms? And then we decided to zoom in on project rela- projects related to reparations mechanisms. So um, this is already narrowed down, but it still has like many, many concepts uh, within the question. So first we're gonna discuss some of these and then kind of uh, come back to answering the question, come up with some specific um, tips for other people to implement in their work. So first of all, let's dive into what it is to work using an intersectional feminist approach or what it is to start with. Could you maybe like provide a definition um, and your perspective on this? Absolutely. So the great thing about Catalistas is we do classify ourselves as an intersectional feminist consulting firm, which means that in all of the different areas that we work, whether that's economic empowerment, civil society development, human rights, education, or peace and conflict resolution, uh, among other areas, uh, we always infuse our work with a gender lens to make sure that we're capturing the different needs of different gender identities. And we also infuse our work with an intersectional lens, which means that we look at the interaction between different identities in society and the effects that inequalities and injustices, microaggressions, macroaggressions might have on these different identities, and especially the way these identities compound each other. So for example, if you are a woman of color in the global north, you will have a very different experience growing up if you are a high socioeconomic status or low socioeconomic status, but you'll also have an extremely different childhood or uh, experience in life from a woman of color in the global south. So all of these different identities intersect in different ways. And we find it extremely important to take a look at the way they interact and the way they affect experiences and needs and approaches in life. All right. Yeah, I think that's that's quite a holistic uh, um um, how do you say like definition so holistic definition I think is great and sometimes I'm just running because you know it's an, ap- uh, an approach and I agree with it but it's hard to define you know what are the actual um, tools you use to to exercise this approach with you know and I hear you say like really be aware of this and like that you know what kind of position and how these things uh, the different uh, factors uh, are connected to each other is it then kind of a, kind of like a, almost an analytical framework that you implement in all, all these different types of work can you say like that exactly so inter- intersectional feminism itself is a theoretical and analytical framework so when we're implementing yeah. this in our work it's a lot of asking questions 
needs assessments, getting to know what different identities and what different intersections mean for each experience and figuring out the kinds of tools to apply to make sure that we're able to sort of even the playing field, so to speak, uh, making sure that everyone has equal access as far as possible to what they need, um, making sure that we are removing barriers and challenges wherever possible. So the tools that we use really depend on each specific context, but in order to figure out what those tools are, it does take a lot of research, asking questions and understanding the context. Yeah, and do you also think that that might be um, a reason that it requires very specific tools uh, depending on the context and that takes quite some resources and research before you can actually um, maybe even state that you're using an intersectional feminist approach that it's still lacking in within the international community of development aid or that it's underdeveloped, so to say, can we say that? You know, I really think it's growing and it is something that's yeah. becoming an important element to include in the, the whole international development sector. Of course, it still has a long way to go, but I think it's a lot of willingness driving this growth. Yeah. You know, people are now aware and, and becoming more knowledgeable on the topics. And so as this knowledge and awareness and willingness to implement is growing, uh, we're seeing intersectionalism and feminism becoming driving factors in a lot of research and in a lot of project development throughout the development sector. So I don't think it's necessarily that you need a ton of resources or a ton of support or a ton of time uh, or, or you know, multiple degrees to be able to implement this. It's, it's a matter of just informing yourself and being willing to do the work and also being yeah. willing to reflect internally and saying, okay, like, are there opportunities that I shouldn't be taking because of you know, certain levels of privilege? Or would this be better if someone else approached it or talked about it? Um, and and also, also looking within yourself and really saying, what, what is appropriate for us to be doing? What's appropriate for other groups to be doing or other people to be doing? Um, so it's, it's willingness, it's knowledge, but it's, it's not a lack of resources, um, not, not in my opinion. Yeah, I think that makes sense because I oftentimes you see, uh, if you look at the, the specifics of this intersectionalism, you know, it, it's just many different aspects that we know are often part of a problem or that we classify as a, as a problem. But it's then, so like it's already there, but I guess this, this whole willingness and perspective to then link them together, that is the kind of the final step that you see with intersectional that's often not done. And I think it's really nice for you to put it in a way that there's a willingness and this level of self-reflection required to be able to do that because the resources are there. Yeah, yeah, more or less, absolutely. All right, and um, all right, well, let's move on. Let's talk about reparations because that's what we're gonna try and discuss and uh, have a little answer to today. Um, so reparations are part of transitional justice. They are measures or mechanisms taken, you know, often by state to redress violations that, um, violations of human rights um, that, that have happened or occurred during a specific time uh, of conflict uh, to repair these com consequences of violations. So that's kind of a way you can say it. This is often done through some forms of compensations or restitution to the victims. And they can these reparations can be both symbolic just as much as they can be material. Um, that's kind of a definition just to quickly sum up. So yeah, it's 
it can be a lot. You have, you know, ju judicial measures, you have administrative measures, financial, you have symbolic measures. Um, do I miss, am I missing some out now? Do you? I, I think those are the, the major categories. The main. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, once again, they're really context specific, uh, conflict specific and violation specific. What do you maybe have some examples of like reparation mechanism that you've worked with or that you're uh, familiar with? Sure. So a lot of my work has been in the Middle East. So we've seen a lot of different forms of transitional justice over the years. And yeah. uh, we've got truth commissions, you've got courts and uh, legal mechanisms, whether those are inside of whichever country the violations have happened in, or for example, they're here in The Hague at the ICC or in another um, judicial mechanism that's made especially for a specific conflict. Uh, of course, you saw this in the case of uh, the Tribunal for Yugoslavia, there's the Special yeah. Tribunal for Lebanon, um, for example. So these are some of the, the legal mechanisms that can be used. Um, you've also got truth uh, truth commissions, um, and these have been used, you know, to kind of figure out on a more civil society level exactly what happens in certain instances, and also to hear from uh, victims and survivors uh, what they actually want as far as reparations. So these can go a long way to provide victims yeah. and survivors with a public voice, and to help exactly. uh, to help wider society also understand what they've been through. So these are, these are some examples of uh, reparation yeah, mechanisms yeah. that exist. Exactly. And I'm also thinking about like some more symbolic examples, uh, for example, statues or uh, renaming of streets. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those, are, those are things that are not directly towards an individual, but that what you're saying to kind of reach a wider civil society or societal or communal um, mm -hmm. collective reparation in a symbolic mm -hmm. way. Definitely. Symbolic reparations can absolutely be great. They can be incredibly meaningful, but they're only meaningful if they are what survivors and victims are asking for. Unfortunately, uh, too often we see that symbolic reparations are used as an excuse or a smokescreen uh, to justify not making any actual change or progress. So as a first step, these can be absolutely great. Um, but governments you know, sometimes claim that symbolic reparations raise awareness and share stories of victims and survivors, and they see this as being enough. Um, but often you know, awareness isn't even on the list of requests for support and reparations by the actual survivors and victims that the intention is to impact. So you have examples like painting a rainbow somewhere instead of providing legal protections for members of the LGBTQ plus population, or in the US recently declaring Juneteenth as a federal holiday, instead of making real progress on legislating social protections for black Americans and other people of color, or working to dismantle the systems that perpetuate police brutality and the oppression of minorities. That doesn't mean these symbolic gestures are without meaning. They can be very meaningful and they can be very valuable, but only if they're coupled with meaningful change and actions that seek to resolve tensions, prevent history from repeating itself and help communities heal and rebuild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is a really holistic way of looking at it. And it shows that it's not, not only 
reparations mechanisms can, but they really should uh, complement each other for them to have reach full impact so that are that is actually linked to um, to the needs of the societies that are trying to reach. And we might come back later to this, but I would like to continue because. You know, if you then kind of try to combine this intersectional feminist approach with reparations mechanisms, what would they like? How would that? What would that look like? Do you have maybe an example of that? Sure. So when you're looking at reparations from an intersectional feminist perspective, of course, it's really essential to understand in every context that reparations are a necessity or a request. Um, it's really important to understand how different groups were affected and what kinds of reparations are going to be the most effective in actually reconstituting their lives. So, for example, when you look at uh, female victims, often who experience violence at the hands of authoritarian regimes or on armed conflicts in very different ways from men, um, often women are left the heads of their households if the men in their families have been arrested or killed. Uh, so they might necessarily not necessarily have any means of economic independence. Uh, they might need yeah. financial reparations. Um, if homes have been destroyed, then that's also a different kind of reparation if, if they have become homeless or displaced, uh, in which case sometimes you need uh, financial reparation, but also um, physical, um, you know, uh, housing reparation can be uh, also a form of justice. Or support in lodging legal um, complaints or cases. Um, many times people don't have the knowledge of legal systems, and especially in communities where women are often less literate than men, they may not be able to navigate very complex bureaucratic systems. So providing technical yeah. legal support is a really crucial component of reparations that can help them actually access uh, the material reparations that may be available to them, but they don't even know that it's there. So yeah. making sure that, that you understand the context and the differences in the way that different communities and identities are affected by uh, conflict and violence is a, a really key aspect of understanding what types of reparations will be useful and helpful um, and also how yeah. to help each group uh, obtain those reparations. Exactly. So the thing I hear you say is that it's kind of multi-layered, but in two ways. Or you're saying the different types of people, the different time they've been harmed, the different types. And at the same time, that also requires different types of reparations uh, mechanisms that are multi-layered to be able to uh, address all those different types of harms. And I think that is really exemplifies how this whole intersectionalism ties in within reparations, because it demonstrates that, you know, you can have a complex multi-layered context where the harm is done in um, and has affected so many different groups in different ways but then to have the perspective that those mechanisms should also really be able to address all of those and reach them as well that for me personally what i've seen is sometimes a bit forgotten you know we have like these systems mm -hmm. and these structures okay this could be like a reparation mechanism like a truth commission that's great so everyone can have the space to like speak up and speak out but then to be able to really implement that within the given context is sometimes hard. And that's the link that is um, 
I think really crucial for you to to for projects related to reparations to be implemented and reach the full potential and give the people what they yeah deserve definitely or have access should have access to exactly yeah and um, I'm just kind of thinking I, I want to link it back to inter- like the intersectional uh, feminist approach. And what you said earlier that reparations mechanisms, they are both to kind of address the harm. So it's kind of backward looking. And at the same time, it's also to avoid such harm to take place again. So it's also forward looking. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the whole intersectional feminist approach helps in establishing that? Definitely. Because I think the role of intersectional feminism is to have a better understanding of how to improve equality, access to justice, access to public spaces, to have a voice, um, to avoid future injustices. So intersectional feminism absolutely plays a role in looking both backwards and forwards to make sure that injustices are not repeated. Um, and also to understand the ways in which they were allowed to happen in the first place. So this dual approach is is really crucial to making sure that we don't continue to repeat mistakes uh, that have been made throughout history, but really don't need to continue being made in the future. Yeah, Yeah. no, I completely agree. And maybe that's actually a good way to already moved to answering the final question because what are these questions that we maybe can ask ourselves or what is some tools that we can take with us to be able to have this dual or multi-layered intersectional approach when it comes to designing um, a project related to reparations. Of course, let's acknowledge the fact that we're speaking in hypotheticals. So it's um, this also still always has to be applied to your current situation but you know maybe we can come up with some things and I think we already said some interesting questions that we can ask ourselves as professionals in the field. Definitely I think a lot of the areas that we as professionals can look into when we're designing programs around transitional justice and reparations are around protection uh, making sure that we're really taking a survivor-centric approach and a human rights-based approach to make sure that the people involved in the project, the beneficiaries and all the stakeholders are protected from additional harm. And that goes back to you know, the principles yeah. that we all follow to do no harm in this field. Uh, additionally, I think we can all can always do research. Um, you know, research is key. Yeah. Understanding the context that you're working in, whether that's the socioeconomic context, the religious context, the ethnic context, the gender context, all of these areas are so crucial to understanding the complexity and the details that go into ensuring the right mechanisms and the right kinds of reparations are applied. So research, research, research is so key and you know, research and in a protective way. So when you're going into the field and you're talking to victims, survivors, stakeholders, you know, different actors, really making sure that that survivor-centric approach is at the core of the research that you're doing. So 
you're getting the information that you need in a safe and secure way that maintains a comfortable environment for everyone who has been through these traumas that require reparations in the first place. I think those are really good ones. So it's the survivor-centric approach and kind of a research-protective approach. Those were the two you just outlined, uh, Mm -hmm. highlighted. And then I was also thinking... With regards to this context-related uh, research approach, I think as professionals in the field, once we're designing such projects, I think it's really good to also, um, you know, s- start with some self-reflection. You said it before. You're you're at the start of trying to design a project that is so sensitive and so complex and multi-layered. I think the the right question to ask is like, will I be able? to really understand the context, even after um, extensive research. And I personally think the answer will always be no. So I do do really think that there should be some co-creation or co-collaboration on designing the, such projects already, uh, and not just with the implementation. And I think that's someone I also really want to include. Uh, Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Co-creation and using participatory approaches are so important. Exactly. So then we now have like a list of three little steps or like tools that people, um, that we think people should take into account, other professionals in the field, a survivor-centric approach, research-protective approach, and co-creation and co-collaboration. And as you're taking these into consideration, you can also just take a step back and say, okay, yes, you're designing a program around transitional justice and reparations. But once you have this this meta understanding of context Mm -hmm. and the type of mechanism that might best apply, just take that step back and say, okay, how do I ensure that every community that needs access will have access? And that can guide you through making sure that your project is going to actually be effective and relevant to the people it needs to be. And also, it'll give you that uh, ease of access in implementing your project in a sustainable way, because you're designing it in that survivor-centric approach and making sure that they can access everything they need to. So just taking that step back and and making sure that that access is also at the core of what you're doing is uh, super important. I think that's super important. I think that's, yeah, you're highlighting the important part that the reparation mechanisms, there's, it's multi-layered in that it's not just about the design and the mechanism itself, but it's also about the outreach and the access. And I think that's really exactly. important to take into account. Yeah, perfect. Amazing. Well, I think we already came up with quite some interesting uh, concepts and questions that we can take with us. Um, yeah, I kind of want to thank you for, for participating and sharing your thoughts and ideas with me it's been a pleasure thanks so much for having me yeah and to everyone else listening i hope you enjoyed this podcast feel free to reach out to either one of us you'll find information either through spotify or on our uh, on our linkedin so thanks very much uh, for listening and hopefully see you next time